Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning. We're going to go to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter 9. For those of you who don't know me well, I am infamous for one area of flaw. And that's the, it's the only flaw that I have. Just ask my wife. <laughs> um, I am not one uh, who really does a lot of preaching along themes uh, of events throughout the year. Holidays, things of that nature. I tend to not necessarily focus a lot of attention on that. And yet, as we uh, are in this Christmas season... Uh, and we just finished up our series in the book of Philippians. I've been praying about uh, what the next step would be uh, in, in uh, preaching over these next few weeks. Obviously, we just finished up one series last week. Uh, after the first of the year, we're going to be kind of focused on some things that have to do with our theme for the next year. And so there's kind of this in-between time of a few weeks, and I've been prayerful. Okay, Lord, what is it that you would have me to preach about and the, the thing that just seems to be continually recurring uh, is the name of Christ, the name of Jesus and who he is. And, you know, we, we are in such a unique time that we, we see every year come about in our nation where there is uh, lip service given to Jesus uh, based upon really just kind of a, a, a cultural emphasis on a holiday Uh, But most people really don't know who it is that they're worshiping. They don't really know who Jesus is. And my mind was directed toward this passage of scripture that is often quoted, you'll see it on Christmas cards, about the name of Jesus. And so this morning, I I really, I just want to preach to you from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Let's stand together one last time. Uh, as we read this text of scripture, and this, is, uh, this verse, particularly verse number 6, is going to be a point of emphasis, Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks. Because the Lord here, and just to give the sake, the, for the sake of context, uh, he is giving, really he's pronounced some judgment on the nation of Israel. But he, he with that judgment, also gives... A solution. He even says at the beginning of the chapter in verse number one, nevertheless, the dimness or the darkness shall not be such as it was in her vexation. And verse number two says this, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. So even though there is judgment, there is a solution to that judgment. Praise the Lord for a solution to judgment. And here is the promised solution. Verse number six says this, for unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I want to go back to verse number 6, and I want you to notice these words in the middle of the verse. And his name shall be called Wonderful. This morning I want to preach to you on that subject. His name is 
Wonderful. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Jesus' name is wonderful. Now, in the Bible, names hold a significance that we are not necessarily accustomed to in our society, in our generation. Uh, most people choose names uh, based on what they think sounds good. Uh, it used to be uh, there was a time in our nation, for instance, when people were often named family names. And then it kind of went from, uh, you know, that's a good, strong family name to uh, this is a name I like. I, I like the sound of it or it reminds me of someone that I like. To now it seems like people are naming their kids something. They just want to confuse everyone with the spelling and the pronunciation. Would you agree with me? I mean, I, I feel, you know, it used to be in school, somebody go through the role and, you know, Bobby and Jimmy and Sally, and now it's like all these names. I feel bad for these teachers having to, to try to pronounce these names. You know, it's just kind of crazy. But people make, make they, they, they name their kids based on just names that they like. But in the Bible times, in, in, in ancient, uh, uh, the, the, the oriental culture of those Days uh, names had a significance. Often those those names were significant to maybe circumstances, historical events that were happening around them. I think of uh, Eli's grandson. You remember he was born. Eli's uh, daughter-in-law had a child right right after the Ark of the Covenant had been taken. And her husband had died in battle and her father-in-law had died falling off the wall. And so it was a tragic time. And she named, she named the son Ichabod, which literally means the glory is departed. And so she named her child essentially uh, based on the events that were surrounding his birth. And that was kind of a common thing. Uh, many of us remember the story of Isaac being born in the world. The name Isaac means laughter. And the reason he was named Laughter is because when God told Abraham and Sarah they were going to have a child, Sarah laughed in her heart. And so his name was Laughter. And so you see that being kind of a common thing. People were named maybe based on a characteristic that was seen in them uh, or that was expected of them. And then sometimes even later on uh, in life, uh, people would be given a, an, another name, a second name. Uh, what we would maybe call a nickname that was based on what others perceived in them. My thoughts uh, on that or my, my mind on that goes toward uh, Barnabas, who was not named Barnabas from birth, but he was given that name by the brethren because the name Barnabas literally means the son of consolation. And Barnabas was, a, uh, was a, an encourager, he was a helper, he was a discipler. And so others looked at him and they said, oh, that's, he, he's Barnabas. He is the son of consolation. And so people would be given names based either by, uh, and yes, at times they were named after their fathers or forefathers. But often they were given names uh, that had to do with their, uh, their character. And even later on, they were given nicknames and things of that. However, when it comes to the Lord, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this in Scripture, there are many, many, many names of God. I mean, there are multiple names of God in the Bible. For instance, we are introduced to Him as God. In the beginning, God. And that comes from the Hebrew word Elohim. And it, it has to do with just the, 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 the one who is, the, 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 the God who... who Started everything. He is God. He is Elohim. He is God. Later on, though, his name is referred to in English 
as the Lord, but the Hebrew word for that is Yahweh or Jehovah. We know him as Jehovah. That is his name. I am the Lord, it says in Isaiah. Uh, and that is my name. When Moses asked him, for instance, who he is, he said, I am that I am. And all throughout the Bible, we have these names of the Lord, names of God, and then specifically of Jesus Christ. We have so many names. We have Jesus. We have Christ. We have Lord. We have Messiah. We have all these different names. But all of the many dozens and dozens of names of God in the Bible, of all of them, did you know that every one of them was given to us by God? We name people. Parents name people. Friends may give nicknames to people. But only God can give his name. And so he tells us what his name is. I am. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Isaiah 42. It is the Lord that reveals to us who he is. We, we do not define who God is. God reveals to us who he is. And this is so important, folks, because so often people believe and think in their minds that somehow we have this ability to define who God is and therefore what he does or what he should do. But that's not our responsibility. He is our creator. He is our designer. And all that we know of him comes from him. He declares to us who he is. And so here in this passage of scripture in Isaiah 9, uh, he's uh, describing this deliverance that he, is, that he is offering. The Lord is going to give deliverance to his people, and that deliverer is the Messiah, the promised one, the one who has been so long awaited from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the picture and God gave the solution for sin and he said, and we sang about it this morning, right? Bruising us the serpent's head. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 3 where God said to the serpent that the one that he would send, the seed of the woman, would bruise the head of the serpent. And so from, from Genesis chapter 3 forward, this is the long-awaited Savior, Deliverer. And God says, I'm going to give you this Deliverer. And here's who He is. He said, for unto us a child is born. In other words, He's going to come as a child. Come by birth. He's not just going to ride into town and announce his presence. He's going to come the way that everyone else comes. He is going to be born. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And then it tells us what will happen. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Verse number 7, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. By the way, we're still waiting for that part to be fulfilled. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. Folks, you look over in the Middle East and what's happening right now in Israel. And you know what that is? That, that is the, all of creation groaning and travailing in pain together, crying out for the fulfillment of this, that the Prince of Peace will come and sit on that throne and rule in righteousness. And we are waiting that day. It's coming, folks. 
But this, this one who is the deliverer who will come and who did come as our Savior, notice it tells us his name and what his name is. Now, think about this with me. The name of Jesus, which is above every name. Philippians chapter 2, that the Father has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the name. And here is what his name is. I want you to notice it says that his name is, first of all, wonderful. Wonderful. Now today, I, I know that most everyone who's here is gathered together today with the express purpose of worshiping God. We know that we should worship because he is worthy. We know that we should worship because he's called us to worship him. But friend, how often do you stop and think that we worship God in part because he is good. His name is wonderful. It is his name. It doesn't mean that this is not an adjective saying that, you know, the name of Jesus is a wonderful name. This is literally saying this is his name. His name is wonderful. Why, why is his name wonderful? Let me give you four reasons this morning that his name is wonderful. First of all, his name is wonderful because he is wonderful in his nature. He is wonderful in his nature. God in the flesh is wonderful. We often make the, 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 the phrase or, or say the phrase, God is good. But, but do we stop to actually consider that the statement God is good is more than a statement about what he has done for us? It's actually a statement about his very nature. Jesus said, there is none good but one, that is God. There is none good. Now, you might look at someone else and say, well, you know, that's a really good guy. I've got, I'll say that about people sometimes. That, this guy's a friend of mine. He's a good guy. And what do I mean by that? Well, by, by men's standards, he's uh, upright. He's a man of integrity. He's likable. Uh, he's faithful. He's trustworthy. Whatever words you want to throw in there. And, and basically, we say, well, by these things that he does, we would say he's good. But we also know theologically that that is not true. Amen. Let me say that again. There is no one who is good. We are all sinners. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not one. That means you too. We are not good. Our nature is not good. We are born with Adam's sin nature. Therefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You've sinned, I've sinned. You say, well, I know, I'm not perfect, I'm human. Yeah, that's the problem, you're human, and humans are not good. We are not good. But God is good. By his very nature, he is good. 
Over and over and over again, the Bible reveals to us that the Lord is good, not only in his works, but in his very nature. Hold your place here in Isaiah chapter 9, and go with me to the New Testament, if you would, please, and John chapter number 1. He is good by his divine nature. 1 Peter chapter 3, don't turn there, but in verse number 15, here's what it says. It says, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Sanctify. You know what it means to sanctify? It means to set apart. And here's literally what that means, to sanctify him in your heart. It means to set him apart from everything and everyone else because he is different. We talk about God being holy. You know what the whole the word holy really means? It means to be separate. It means to be different. Theologically, we would refer to this as the otherness of God. Did you know that God is other than? Other than what? He's other than you. He's other than me. He's other than this world. He is separate from sinners. We'll look at that in just a moment. He is wonderful in his nature. For, or John chapter 1, look at verse number 18. It says here, No man hath seen God at any time, The only begotten Son, this is Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so Jesus is the declaration of God. He is God in the flesh. And look what it says in verse number 14. And the Word, Jesus, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full, full, of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. Now, you might describe someone, an individual, as being a gracious person, but there is no one who is perfectly full of grace. I mean, all of us have some degree of selfishness, do we not? We have some place at which our patience comes to an end. We have some point, a breaking point, where our kindness, is it comes to an end. But Jesus has no place where his kindness ends. He is full of grace. He is full, listen friend, he is full of grace. And anyone who says, well God would never save me because he doesn't, you know, you just don't know how wretched and how wicked I am. Friend, understand this, he is full of grace. But not only grace, he's also full of truth. He's full of grace and truth. These concepts, in our minds, often contradict each other. We've come to a place where we believe that telling the truth is the opposite of being gracious. To be honest with someone can be to be hurtful or to be offensive or unkind. But Jesus is both full of grace and full of truth. And while man is a liar, right? Let God be true and every man a liar. Jesus is full of grace and truth. This is his nature. He is other than. He is different. Friend, understand you came today to worship a God who is different than you and me. He is so far above us. He is... Wonderful. Go with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 7. Hebrews, chapter 7. 
In Hebrews 7 and verse number 25, it says here, Wherefore he, that is Jesus, our high priest, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us. Think about this. Jesus, while never ceasing to be God, became man. Such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins uh, for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. In other words, according to the Old Testament law, those people who served as priests and even the high priest, they may have been quote-unquote good men, but they were not perfect and they were not sinless. But our high priest, who is the true high priest, not after the Levitical order, but, uh, but, but the Son of God himself, of the seed of David is a high priest forevermore, and he has no sin. And the high priest of the Levitical priesthood, when they would come and offer uh, the, the, the sacrifice for the sins of the people, first, they had to offer sacrifice for their own sins, and then for the people. Jesus didn't have to do that. Why? Because he is holy and separate from sinners. He is other than. He is Wonderful. He is sinless. He is perfect. And this is why it's so incredible that God has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That, that he literally became sin. He who knew no sin. The wonderful Son of God died for us. He, he, listen, friend, imagine. Hebrews calls this a contradiction of sinners against himself. Why? Because he is other than. He is wonderful in his nature. The God that we worship today is wonderful. So he is wonderful in his nature, but let me say this also. He's not only wonderful in his nature, he is also wonderful in his works. He is wonderful in his nature, but he is also wonderful in his works. Why does that matter? Because, friend, if we're not careful, we can get that cart before the horse, and we think that God's goodness is dependent on his actions. In other words, if God blesses me, then I can say God is good. But if things don't go my way and life is not uh, uh, very good and, and there's illness and there's financial struggle and there's trial and difficulty and the loss of loved ones, then I can't say that God is good. No, no, no. His nature, God is good, period. God is good. But he is not only good in his nature, 
He is also wonderful in his works. Everything that God does is good. James says it this way in James chapter 1, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He never changes. And therefore, everything he does is good. And every good thing that you have has come from God himself. Go with me to the book of Mark, if you would, as we make our way back toward the Old Testament. Here in the New Testament, Mark chapter number 7. Everything that our Lord does is good. Because he is good. And so we see the acts of Jesus and the description of the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts, I believe it is, is that he went about doing good. Everything he did was good. And here's one example of that. In Mark chapter 7, in verse number 31, it says, And again, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee, through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf, and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him, And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain. Just one of the many, many, many miracles that Jesus did And notice it says, and he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it. Imagine this. The more that Jesus is saying, listen, don't go about telling anyone what I've done, the more that they did that. Why? Well, because if you've seen what Jesus can do, you can't keep quiet about it. Let me say that again. Think think with me on this. If you've seen what Jesus can do, you can't keep quiet about it. If you had a friend or a family member who was deaf, their whole life they couldn't hear anything, and when they tried to speak, it was very clear. You've heard deaf people try to talk, and a lot of times it's very clear. They don't hear, and it causes an impediment in their speech. In your whole life, you've known this individual, and that's the way they've been. And all of a sudden, one day comes a man who, just by touching him and saying, be open, gives him perfect hearing and perfect speech immediately. If you witness that, don't you think you'd be making a phone call or two? Don't you think somehow at a dinner party it would come up? You know, you wouldn't believe what I saw this week. I mean, if you've seen what Jesus can do, you're going to tell someone. And by the way, if you have experienced what Jesus can do, doesn't it stand to reason that you would tell someone? I mean, am I talking to people this morning who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, whose sins have been forgiven, whose lives have been transformed, 
by the power of the gospel, by the power of the cross. I mean, listen, for so many of us, we can say it really doesn't matter. The skeptics out there and the atheists out there, it really doesn't matter if I could outduel them in a debate as to why they ought to believe in God. I know within my heart of hearts that God is real. How do I know that? Because he has transformed my life. Have you experienced the transforming power of the gospel? And if so, how can you possibly keep quiet about that? How is it that we don't speak up? I mean, Jesus is here saying, hey, don't go telling anyone what I've done here. And the more he tells them that, the more they go out and say, listen, look at what Jesus can do. Why? Because he's wonderful in his works, folks. He is wonderful in his works. And so verse number 37, it says this. One of my favorite verses in the book of Mark is this. And we're beyond measure astonished. These people were, were, were blown away by what Jesus did. And here was, what, here was their statement saying, He hath done all things well. He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Jesus in Luke chapter 4 walked into the synagogue and he opened the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 61. What we know is Isaiah 61. And here's what he read. The New Testament renders it this way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of them all that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. You see, Jesus came in the flesh with all the fullness of the Godhead. In the, uh, the, the Bible says that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And by his very nature, he is wonderful. But he came to do good. And he said, the Spirit is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me too. Because he's anointed me to do, to do what? Well, to preach the gospel to the poor. And recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised. I, I mean, Jesus came and really his ministry, while he was focused on developing these 12 men who would carry on the gospel, as he went about, what did he do? He went about doing good. Healing sick people and not, not just physical ailments of people. I mean, uh, delivering people from the bondage of sin and demonic uh, possession and oppression and and, 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 and he restored families and he, and he put lives back together. And everywhere he went, he just left this trail of people who had been blessed by his goodness. He's wonderful in his works. He's wonderful in his nature. He's wonderful in his works. But as we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, let me say this also. He's wonderful in judgment. He's wonderful in judgment. 
Notice it says in verse number 7, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. You know, one of the things that I'm looking forward to the most about the return of Christ, and it's really not just an end to suffering, and it's not really even just an end to uh, the world as it is and, and uh, the, the realization of the life of glory that he'll give to us, the, the blessings of heaven. But I am so looking forward to the judgment of God where he rules the world in perfect justice and sets everything straight. Think about this with me. I, I'm thankful. I am thankful Say what you will about our nation. I've lived in very, very corrupt countries before. And I know there's corruption in our government. There's no question about that. But let me just say this. I'm thankful for, for the, the system that we have. I'm thankful for our judicial system. It doesn't get everything right. But many times justice is served. And it's a blessing when it is, isn't it? It's encouraging when the right prevails, the, 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 the right side of the issue, the correct side prevails, is that not refreshing? One of the things that we hate the most in life is an injustice. Jesus is going to come and he is going to rule the world in righteousness with perfect justice. There is coming a day where every injustice will be set straight. Think about that. Now that ought to encourage your heart. I know it does mine. I'm so thankful. I, I, I look at the world and I see all these things and I just get frustrated and upset. But I know that God is going to set everything straight one day. Every injustice that you've ever experienced, God is going to fix that. The Lord Jesus is going to come and he's going to rule and reign from the throne of David. And he's going to set it all straight. And that should encourage us. But it also should cause us to fear. Because there are times that we're on the wrong side of an injustice. And as I said before, there is none righteous. There's none of us who can honestly say that there's no... There's nothing in us that God would need to judge. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says in the book of Romans in chapter 2, verse number 2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Did you know that the judgment of God is according to truth? Now, understand this. It's crazy that I even have to differentiate, but let's be clear. The judgment of God is not according to your truth. You hear people say that, right? Well, I'm just living my truth. There's no Truth needs no adjective. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. Truth is truth. And oftentimes, we put, we, we, we put a spin on the truth to paint ourselves in a good light, even in our own minds. But know this. God's going to judge according to truth. 
The judgment of God is according to truth. And there is no respecter of persons with him. Verse 6 of Romans 2 says this. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. God will judge in truth. He is wonderful in judgment. The Bible calls him many different times. It calls him the righteous judge. The Lord, the righteous judge. Friend, there is a day coming. When the promised Messiah who came to be our Savior, who came to die in our place and shed His blood for your sins and for my sins, will come again and He will come in judgment. Are you ready for His perfect judgment? Are you ready to stand before God knowing... That he will judge according to truth and righteousness. And there is no unrighteousness in him and there is no respect of persons. He will judge according to truth. He's wonderful in judgment. But then I, I want to say this also because I don't want to miss this. He's wonderful in his salvation. Because this just and righteous judge of the universe. Who will judge every man according to his works. Has made a way for you to be spared his judgment. Because he took your, his judgment upon himself. The judgment that you deserve. The wrath that you and I deserve. He took upon himself. Verse number 4 of Romans 2 says this. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness. And forbearance and longsuffering. Knowing not that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. God wants you to be forgiven. He wants you to be able to have boldness in the day of judgment because you have received His gift of eternal life. He is a wonderful Savior. So wonderful is He that the one who is separate from sinners literally became the sin that we all have fallen into the sin that we've committed against Him. He took that all upon Himself. And He took upon Him the punishment for that sin. As the wrath of God was poured out on His own Son for your sake and for my sake. And now, as we read a moment ago in Hebrews chapter 7, he is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him. The righteous, holy, wonderful judge of the earth is also the answer. He's also the savior. He's also the deliverer. And friend, can I implore you, if you have not, Turn to Christ and received his gift of eternal life and received his salvation to accept that today. John chapter 1 says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. If you will receive Christ, you'll not only be forgiven, you'll become his child. You'll be welcomed into his family and this wonderful God, who is wonderful in His nature and wonderful in His works and wonderful in judgment and wonderful in salvation, will reveal Himself to you as your wonderful Father and wonderful friend.
And if you have not received Christ, may I today implore you to turn to Him because judgment is coming. God's just judgment will come. And He will judge according to truth. But I think many here today are probably, you know, could say, yes, I have received His wonderful salvation. Praise the Lord for that. Are you worshiping Him? Are you serving Him? Are you yielded to Him because, of his, because He is wonderful? Because He is worthy? Listen, friend, God is good. God is good. And He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our submission. He's worthy of our service. He's worthy of us. He is worthy because his name is wonderful.